I hope you'll take your copy of the scriptures and open to Mark chapter 13. This week, as I was spending time in Mark 13, thinking about this passage and considering it, I started thinking about the idea of expectations. I think you can probably all relate to the experience of having bad expectations, wrong expectations, finding yourself in a situation that you did not expect and were not prepared for. I've been there. Maybe you have too. On the other hand, we probably all understand the value of having good expectations, of being prepared for good or bad. Along those lines, I was thinking this week of how thankful I am to have had people in my life who were there, who helped to set my expectations for different stages of life. I wonder, maybe, maybe you could think back to conversations that you've had. Maybe, maybe your parents set you down before you started a new school or took your first job. Maybe when you started a new relationship or right before you left for college, maybe moving to a new city, maybe your parents set you down and they tried to help set some proper expectations. I was thinking this week about conversations I've had with my parents. Also conversations I had with my pastor at the time, just before Michelle and I were married. I remember he took me aside and we had some good conversations and he encouraged me to think through what I should expect in marriage. He wanted me to have good expectations, both about the joys that were ahead. He's right, there's been many of them. But he was also faithful to help me consider that things wouldn't always be easy. Because after all, I'm a sinner. You of all people know this very well. He also told me in one of those conversations that Michelle was a sinner. And I was as surprised to hear that as you probably are. But I'm a sinner and she's a sinner. And guess what? When two sinners come and try to share a house, there's going to be sin. And beyond that, beyond the fact that we're both sinners sinning against each other, we live in an imperfect world. And when you're 25 and on the cusp of marriage, dreaming big dreams, we don't always think about sickness or financial difficulties or layoffs. We weren't thinking much at that time about prospects of infertility or disagreements with extended family. The list goes on. And I'm thankful as I look back to have had someone who sat me down and said, enjoy this time and be ready. It's true for every stage of life, isn't it? Whether you're entering marriage or parenthood or retirement, it's helpful to have good expectations. And the reason I bring this up this morning is because we come to Mark chapter 13. We've come to a passage in which Jesus is helping his disciples to look forward. He wants them to be prepared for what is coming. Now, if you've read Mark 13, and by the way, I hope this is your practice. Maybe you've never thought of it before. I hope that you've read Mark 13 in preparation for our time together this morning. 
And if you have, you may have had questions. And if you had questions, no, you're not alone because I had a lot of them. So we come to Mark chapter 13. We come to what is, I'd say unequivocally, the hardest passage to understand in the gospel of Mark. And it has parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, and those are equally difficult. It's a passage about the future. Or is it? If you've ever stayed up too late at night, turned on the TV and heard a preacher saying, Jesus is coming back. It's very likely he was quoting verses from this chapter for one of the parallel passages. They're passages that have been used and abused a lot over the years. There's verses in this chapter that have whole books written on them. Some of them I would commend and others I would encourage you to run from. And I'll tell you on the front end that there are good, faithful Bible teachers whom I love and respect who differ on some of the interpretation of this particular chapter. All that to say, we could spend this week and the next six weeks getting really deep into the weeds. And for those of you who are like me, we'd have a lot of fun. Maybe we'll do that sometime. But here's my goal for today and for probably next week is to consider this, that in a chapter that's all about helping us look forward, there are 20 imperatives. What's an imperative? It's a command. It's telling us something to do. And what I want us to consider this morning, that the primary point of this passage is that Jesus is helping his disciples to have good expectations of what's to come, but also to help them respond. And maybe you leave this morning not real clear on the timeline or any of that, but oh, that we would know how to respond in a way that honors Christ. The reality is, the disciples had many misinformed expectations. Jesus in his kindness lays out some of the things they should be ready for. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. This chapter has often been used to create timelines, to speculate about this current event or that world affair. But in so many ways, that misses the point of what Jesus is communicating here. He's not telling his disciples how to predict the future. He's telling them how to prepare for what's coming. There's a difference. He's speaking prophetically, but I'd say he's primarily speaking pastorally. Do you know the difference? Prophetically is to say, here's what's coming, and Jesus does that here. But I would say, Sometimes we see that and we completely miss what's really driving this chapter, which is Jesus being a good and kind shepherd, preparing his disciples to live well. With that in mind, perhaps the best way to keep flesh on the passage is to remember the setting and to remember the people involved. If you've been with us, then it should be pretty familiar. Jesus in Jerusalem, it's the week before the cross. Last week, we ended chapter 12, we heard the last public teaching recorded by Mark of Christ before the cross. That ended chapter 12. 
If we look forward to chapter 14, that's where we start the passion narrative. So in chapter 14, we see a betrayal and an arrest and a trial. Oh, and let me tell you how tempting it was just to jump from 12 to 14 and see if nobody noticed. <laughs> but we have this chapter, and it's important because in this section, Jesus, knowing where they've been, knowing what they've expected, and knowing what's coming, in his kindness, prepares his disciples. So, as we come to the chapter, we see them leaving Jerusalem leaving the temple. And what we're going to see is that the disciples look back and they stand and they are in awe of the temple itself, of this complex. And Jesus uses their comments on the beauty and the majesty of the temple to have this conversation about expectations. And of course, what he tells them is relevant for us. As we look to the future, what should we expect and more importantly, how should we prepare? How should we respond? So Mark chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 1 to 13. Hope you'll follow along as I read. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked Jesus privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the word of God spoken by him, preserved for us. And I pray that we'll hear it. That the spirit of God will apply it to our hearts. Now, if you've been around the Bible, 
you know there's a lot of references in the scriptures to the temple. The temple, in many ways, is a character, and maybe even one of the main characters in the scriptures. You may also know that the temple in Jerusalem that Jesus has been at in our last couple of months of study, it's not the first temple to have been built in Jerusalem. In fact, it's the third. The first was built by Solomon almost 500 years before. That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then another temple was, re- was built, and it was very modest. When King Herod came on the scene about 25 years before the birth of Christ, he determined that there should be some improvements. So he began a construction project building the temple that Jesus would see in his lifetime. And by the time we get to where we are in Mark chapter 13, this temple has been being built for 50 years. And as majestic as it was, it wasn't complete yet. It was extraordinary, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And I don't know what you think of when you think about the temple, but we're talking about a complex that covers about 35 acres. What's an acre? How about 26 football fields? Maybe that helps. It's a magnificent place, not only in size, but in beauty and splendor, built with incredible detail and opulence. For example... The foundation of the temple was made out of these white stones. The whole building was made out of white stones, but larger stones in the bottom, some of them as long as 18 feet. Now, that might not be impressive today, but this is before heavy machinery. Imagine people setting 18-foot-long stones, one upon another. Parts of the temple were covered in gold, It was a sight to see and could be seen from all over. We see in our passage that Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple and one of the disciples can't help but stop and to look back. He looks back and we hear his words in verse 1. Look, teacher, what, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Can you hear it, the The awe. I think he is in awe of the physical structure. There's no doubt about that. I also think there's something in him that remembers who he's with and what he expects Jesus will do. And I think, here's my speculation, he sees himself one day in that temple with the victorious king in the splendor and the majesty Look, teacher, this wonderful building. Remember, the disciples believed that Jesus was Messiah. They believed he came to rule and reign. I think all this goes together in the mind of the disciple, but Jesus hears what he says and takes this opportunity to have an important conversation. While the disciples having this moment of awe and anticipation, Jesus starts to reform expectations. He says something the disciples did not expect, something no one would have expected. He says this incredible complex, these 
majestic buildings that have been under construction for 50 years, that stand as an architectural wonder, that are at the very heart of the Jewish faith and practice. Notice what he says. It's coming down. Verse 2. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What's he describing? Complete destruction. Not one stone on top of another. And in just a minute, we're going to consider the disciples' reaction to what Jesus has said. But, but first, I want to zoom out and want you to consider the theological significance of what's being said here. Think for a second about what the temple was. Not necessarily the building, but what it stood for. The temple was the epicenter of the Jewish faith. It's where people came to meet with God. It's where they came to give their offerings and to make their sacrifices. People made long pilgrimages where? To the temple. In so many ways, the temple is representative of the old covenant. The means by which the people of God were invited and welcomed to the presence of God. But now here's Jesus. Who knows what will happen at the end of the week. This is just days before he will give his life as the final and ultimate sacrifice. Days before he would become, through his death and resurrection, the only mediator between God and man. Days before he would, in essence, become the embodiment of the temple. Maybe you remember how on the day he died, the sky went dark. And we're told that the, the veil or the curtain of the temple, what stood between the temple, the main part of the temple and the Holy of Holies, that large, intricate curtain was torn top to bottom. Represents the removal of the separation between God and man. And Jesus knows this is coming. This building in all his majesty isn't going to be needed. Sacrifices won't need to be made. Jesus will be the sacrifice. Priests will not be needed to mediate between God and man. Jesus will be the mediator. I think all this lies underneath this. Jesus saying the temple will be destroyed. We should be able to see how the prediction of Jesus plays into the larger work of God. And of course, the disciples wouldn't have put all that together at this time. But they did know this, that Jesus wasn't pleased with the current establishment. Remember Monday of this week when he goes into the temple, turns over the tables, runs out the money changers, and he declares on that day, quoting the prophet Jeremiah, judgment is coming against the house of God. Right? So maybe it wasn't a complete surprise when they, he announced again the judgment. Maybe this talk of the temple being destroyed wasn't out of nowhere, but it was definitely something that would bring up more questions. And we see that as we keep reading. In verse 3, we see that Jesus and his disciples, they leave the temple. They cross the Kidron Valley. And they go up into the Mount Olives, which is east of the city, and from which you could look over Jerusalem and you could see the temple. So they're there and they're sitting. And No doubt as they went, the disciples were talking. What does he mean? Right? trying to work it out themselves. 
But as they sit there and they look at the temple, and we're told that Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the inner circle plus Andrew, they're sitting with Jesus and they ask him a question. Verse four, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign that all these things are going to be accomplished? So there's the question and it is a good question. The temple's going to be destroyed. Okay, when? When will it happen? And it's this question that sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. But before we hear the answer, let me just, I want to make a couple of observations about the question. First, and someone else helped me to see this. This is a question that demonstrates faith. Notice this, they don't say, really? The temple's going to be destroyed? They don't push back. What do they say? Okay, when? Right? I think in this question, we should see maturity in the disciples. We've, we've dogged them a lot. Let's give them credit where credit is due. They trusted Jesus in this moment. They didn't ask if, they asked when. The second thing I want you to notice about the question is that it's actually more than one question. Look at the verse again. Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign that all these things are going to be accomplished. A couple of layers here. It's not insignificant that he switches from these things to all these things. And something that may not be apparently relevant until you get into the chapter and, and look at the whole context is that for the disciples, the destruction of the temple was not a singular event. But in their minds, this event was the immediate indicator of another event. See, for them, the destruction of the temple signaled the end. For them, the destruction of the temple was a sign that the end had come. So what they hear isn't only the buildings coming down, they hear all things are coming to an end. Judgment will come from God, Jesus will reign. Do you understand the question now? When? Right? It's about to go down. When? It's a lot more than a building being destroyed. And just in case you wonder if I'm speculating too much, you can see the designation between those questions really clearly in Matthew's version. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So we see this connection for them. In their minds, this is one singular event. It's a lot more than an announcement about the temple. It's the end of the age, the final consummation of all things. And so as we think about this, what becomes very important for us is recognizing what happened 40 years after this conversation. Now, this is one of those places we could get in the weeds really fast. Let me try to give you a quick overview. See, the disciples assumed that the destruction of the temple and the end of the age were side by side. So when they asked Jesus, how will we know? When is it coming? They're looking for the end. But what Jesus knew and what we now know is that there's a long period of time between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. 
Because the destruction of the temple, I believe that Jesus prophesied here, happened just 40 years later. God used the Roman army to utterly destroy Jerusalem and to level the temple. And let's not give the Romans too much credit. I believe this is the judgment of God. Read the Old Testament, how God used foreign nations to come in and to bring judgment against his people. And we see that in the year 70 AD as Jesus uses the Romans to come in and to completely demolish Jerusalem. The judgment of God came against the nation of Israel. And it's an event and a circumstance that drastically changed Jerusalem and the Jewish religion forever. The Romans came in. They destroyed Jerusalem. They were persecuting Christians. And Jesus knows this. His disciples will go through that event. They're going to see the destruction of the temple. They're going to endure persecution from a nation that hates them. In many ways, it will feel to them like the end has come. But Jesus knows that what they're going to experience is only the beginning. He doesn't explicitly tell them about the distance between the events. But he does take time to prepare them for what's coming. And at the same time, he's preparing all Christians of all time for what's coming. I hope that makes just a little bit of sense, and hopefully as we keep going, it'll make more. It brings us back to where we began, Jesus trying to set proper expectations. He's preparing his disciples for what's to come, and at the same time, he's preparing us. Like I said earlier, he's speaking prophetically, but he's also speaking pastorally. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't leave without telling us what to expect? As we go through the rest of Mark 13, there's a lot of details about things to come. But they're held together by imperative after imperative, command after command. And Jesus has a lot to say, not only about what's coming, but how to respond. And I wish we could have got to this point in the sermon a lot sooner, but I think all that groundwork was necessary. In the time we have left, don't be scared by the numbers, but in the time we have left, we're going to see three warnings that are paired with admonitions and two promises that are paired with commands. Let me say that again. Three warnings that come with admonitions and two promises that come with commands. Remember the disciples asked a question and the answer is not as straightforward as maybe they would have hoped. Jesus starts with a warning. Verse 5. Jesus began and said to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So here's the first warning. What's the warning? Many are going to come. They're going to say that they're me. And they're going to lead people astray. They're going to claim to be the Messiah. Or to say it another way, they're going to claim to speak on behalf of God. They're going to be people who sound like they have truth, who sound like they have authority, but in fact, they're going to be enemies of God. And it's a warning that we hear over and over in the New Testament. If you've read the New Testament, you know this warning is repeated and repeated. Peter repeats it. Remember, Peter's listening to Jesus say this now. Peter writes in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, 
bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Jesus says it plainly, and the warning echoes throughout the New Testament. In the last days, in the days that we live in, there will be those who are deceptive, those who preach a false gospel, a message that may sound good, a message that may even use a lot of pieces of God's word, but a message that will be false and that will lead you astray from the one true God. That's the warning, okay? There are going to be those who come and they're, they're not going to speak the truth. And there's an admonition that goes with the warning. Here's the admonition. See that no one leads you astray. Hear the warning? False teachers are coming. The admonition? Watch out and don't be led astray. This is Jesus' warning to his disciples. He knows that soon he'll be leaving. Things will get harder. And when life gets harder, isn't this true? When life gets harder, we go looking for answers. And sometimes when we go looking for answers, we are tempted to grab a hold of the first thing that sounds good or offers relief. Jesus knows these guys are about to go through it and they're going to be looking for answers. And he says, don't be led astray. And I think the warning and admonition comes to us as well. Don't be led astray. Okay. How do I do that? Right? It's a big conversation, but to boil it down real quick, we must be people of the word. Must be people of the scriptures. We have to know what God has said, and we must test everything by the word. Whether you hear it on TV or the radio or from this pulpit, test it. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's to come, and he wants them to be aware that they're not deceived. Again, he's setting expectations. They expect Jesus is coming, kingdom is coming, we're on easy street. And he says, no, not yet. Be watchful. And then there's a second warning, starting in verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are but the beginning of birth pains. Another warning, another admonition. The warning is that the world is going to get worse. Wars, talk of wars. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. It's going to be bad. The world's going to be divided. And you're going to say, surely this is the end. But it won't be the end. See, Jesus knows that they have this expectation. Things will arise and then the end will come. He knows the temple will be destroyed and they will think this is the end. But he's telling you, no, no, not yet. And the trouble's not only going to be national or political, it's going to be natural disasters and economic troubles. There's going to be earthquakes. And of course, anytime there's war and natural disaster, famine's close behind. Scarcity of food. This is the warning. It's going to seem like things are out of control. You are going to be tempted to fear. 
What's the admonition? Don't be alarmed. I think we can relate to the temptation, can't we? When things seem uncertain, we look at the world around us and say, it's out of control. But as believers, we know this. We have a sovereign God who is over all things. And we can look at Mark 13 and say, no surprises here. Don't be alarmed. The world feels like it's been turned upside down. And it feels like God is distant. No, this is just as he has foretold. The warning, the world will seem out of control. The admonition, don't be alarmed. Be a people who trust God. And in fact, we're told that when it looks bad, it will only get worse. Verse 8, these are but the beginning of birth pains. Just when you think the end has come and you think that it can't get any worse, it may only be the beginning. And this is the opposite, probably, of what the disciples were expecting. So once again, let me tell you, Jesus is setting expectations. They expected Jesus to conquer their enemies, establish his kingdom. They expected his rule and reign, and that will happen, church, but not yet. First, there must be days of trouble and trials. And the same is true for us. Christ doesn't promise our best life now, at least not in the way we may think. But we'll see at the end of the chapter, he is coming again. We can trust him. But for now, don't be surprised when troubles come. The first warning, false prophets are coming. Don't be deceived. Second, trouble is coming. Be prepared. And third, persecution is coming. Be ready. Verse 9, be on your guard. You've heard these verses before, haven't you? We've talked about this kind of thing before. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples and all their expectations and all they anticipated. And then Jesus tells them this. They will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Now that last warning, that's a big deal. Wars, earthquakes, famines. Okay, but we're all in this together, right? This one touches a little closer to home, doesn't it? You're going to be beaten. You're going to be drugged before kings and governors. If you've read the book of Acts, then you know prophecy fulfilled. It happened just as he predicted. The disciples, every one of them would face persecution. They would be beaten. They would stand before the authorities. They would be asked to give testimony. And I have no doubt that in that moment, they clung to the words of Christ because they're asked to give an account for what they're doing. And I have no doubt they heard in their minds Jesus saying as he does in verse 11, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad that we have the scriptures, the word of God, and we can have good expectations? Jesus, so kind. He told his disciples, here's exactly what's going to happen. 
And in my wisdom, I know the fears you'll have. You'll fear what you're going to say. You'll wreck yourself trying to plan ahead. But my spirit will be in you. Do you hear in each one of these admonitions the call to trust? Oh, that we would be people who trust God. I told you we see examples of this in the book of Acts. I can't help but give you just one. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are called before the authorities. We read in Acts 4, 7. When they were set in the midst of them, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Speaking of healing a lame man. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. There's your prophecy fulfilled. The Spirit will give you words. Peter, filled by the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you hear that and think, man, look at Peter. That's a preacher. Flip back a few pages and look at Peter running scared. He has the Spirit of God in him. And if you're a believer, you do too. So we can trust that no matter what comes, we can speak confidently and boldly. We can proclaim the name of Christ. The warning is that persecution will come. We saw it in Acts. And if you're a student of church history, we've seen it over and over and over again. And if you look outside of our nation, where we've been relatively protected, we have brothers and sisters laying down their lives. And it doesn't always come from authorities and governments. Jesus says, your own family may turn against you. Brother will turn against brother over to death. Father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all, by all for my name's sake. Can we agree that's a whole nother level? All right, government, come. But when your children or your parents hand you over, and Jesus tells his disciples, this is what you can expect before the end comes. And if you've read the New Testament, you know it's not just for them, but it's for all of us. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Back, back up again. What did the disciples expect? Victory, triumph, a reigning king. And Jesus says, not yet. As we hear all this, maybe you're wondering, where's the good news? How is this a good plan? 
Wouldn't it make much more sense for Jesus to rise from the dead, defeat his enemies, and take his people to glory? Why all the trouble? Why all the trials? Why all the persecution? I told you there was three warnings with admonitions. Let me give you two promises with commands. And I hope this answers the question, why is this a good plan? Let me remind you first that God's wisdom is higher than yours. And what we see in verse 10 is that God is using this time of trouble and trials to save the nations. Let me start back in verse 9. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to the nations. I told you it's a promise slash command. I think it's both. Here's the promise. The gospel will go to all nations. Here's the command. The gospel must go to all nations. Why this season of trouble and trial and persecution? Why are we still here? Because our God loves the nations. And our God is merciful towards sinners. Why has Jesus not returned and made all things new? Because God loves the nations. And God is a God of mercy. Peter says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Brothers and sisters, these days and years of hardship and suffering are part of God's plan. He's showing his patience. He's saving his people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. I like the way Matthew phrases this part of Jesus' words to his disciples. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. I think we have a promise that the gospel will reach the end of the world, and we have a command, or at least the reminder of a command, that we are to be faithful. You can convince me that this isn't a command. Okay. You can flip to Matthew 28, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. See the connection? The gospel must go to all nations. Disciples, go. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God has promised the gospel will go to all nations. And we have been commanded to be the ones to take it. What a privilege to be ambassadors of the good news of Jesus Christ. We get to join in God fulfilling his promises to show mercy to sinners. I should ask you the question. Are you participating? 
Are you joining with Jesus in his mission to reach the world? Are you thankful for the mercy of God? Truly, because if you are, you will want that mercy to be experienced by others. As we think about the delay, quote-unquote, delay in the coming of Christ, it should motivate us to use the time that he's given us. As we think about the warnings of Jesus, we may wonder what God's up to. Why this time of tribulation? Well, God is using this time to save the nations, and you're called to participate. And second, God is using this time to save his people. So don't give up. Verse 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when you hear that, don't hear Jesus saying your salvation is based on your ability to hold on to him. We talk about this a lot. We aren't saved by what we do. And you aren't saved by your ability to hang on. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is the road is hard and the road is long. But keep your eyes on the prize because salvation is coming for all who are kept by God. Those who are kept will endure. And when we endure, we're showing that God has done his work in us. So Jesus is not giving us a burden to carry, but he's giving us hope. Salvation is coming. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And if you feel that, know this. The one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a verse of hope. In the midst of trouble and trials and hardships, know this. God is working for your salvation. If you're frustrated by the world, take heart. This is God's plan for you. To grow you and to change you and to save you. To quote Paul, don't grow weary in doing good. I hope you see hope in this passage. Jesus is trying to help his disciples to have proper expectations. That includes warnings and admonitions about things to come. It also includes hope. God is saving the nations. God is saving you. As we go over the next week or so, we're going to see Jesus affirming even more so the trouble that's coming. But we're also going to see that there's great hope at the end. Let me just read you the end of the chapter and then we'll be done. Mark chapter 13, verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory and power. And he will send out angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, and to the ends of heaven. Jesus is coming again. Let's be found faithful. Let's trust him when trouble comes. Let's stand for him when opposition comes. Let's proclaim the gospel, and let's look forward to the hope of his return.